Welcome back to Read Succeed. I'm your host, Dave Campbell, here on your community radio station, 106.5 FM, WFMP, LP, Louisville. Super-sized episode today. 2021 winner of the Pulitzer Prize for History, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, by Dr. Marcia Chaitlin. Lots of fascinating complexities in this one. Stay tuned. I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Greetings to all Democracy Now! listeners on Pacifica Affiliate Forward Radio 106.5 FM, WFMP LP in Louisville, Kentucky. This grassroots community radio station relies on volunteer power and your financial support to continue broadcasting the progressive, national, and homegrown local programming you've come to expect from Forward Radio. At a time when our public airwaves are being gobbled up by corporate interests, here's an open mic dedicated to local voices, civic engagement, and community empowerment. Please go to forwardradio.org and pledge your generous support today. Thank you so much. Welcome to episode 25 of Read and Succeed, wasting no time reading and reviewing Georgetown University Professor of History and African American Studies, Dr. Marcia Chaitlin's absolutely fascinating winner of the 2021 Pulitzer Prize for History, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. Her brilliant and very scholarly and very serious canvassing of the at times simultaneously competitive, cooperative, and collaborative relationship between black America and the fast food industry, and one fast food company in particular, McDonald's. As a disclaimer for community radio purposes, this show and forward radio, the same as Dr. Chaitlin's text, present no sides for or against patronage or employment at McDonald's restaurants, but only seek to provide the audience insight into a very illuminating and very important conversation about how the fast food industry and its time-tested franchise model spread from meatpacking plants trying to reinvent themselves after Upton Sinclair's The Jungle in 1920 Chicago with White Castle, then to gas station convenience along U.S. Route 25 with KFC in the 1930s, then to post-World War II suburban car culture with McDonald's in southern sunny California in the 1940s and 50s, before entering the 20th century black neighborhood in the 1960s. Fast food, and McDonald's specifically, all started by white businessmen, many of them branded with white people as their logo, shocked predominantly white corporate America following the 1968 assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. by promising, and fulfilling the promise, of extending their franchise opportunities to black entrepreneurs in the inner city a legacy that left McDonald's one of the largest employers of people of color in the United States and created a class of black wealth and management that, according to Chaitlin, exercises not negligible influence over policy at civil rights organizations such as the NAACP and the Urban League. The socioeconomic gains from black entry into the fast food industry were and are real, but so are the contradictions. The open-ended black socialism of the civil rights movement essentially gave way to a still constrained choice black capitalism of the franchise model. Black food culture transformed many of the menus at American fast food restaurants with an identifiably soul food influence, but at the cost of a reverse transformation of many of those food pathways with a manufactured and non-nutritional alternative. And the ultimate contradiction of McDonald's restaurants remaining almost to a franchise unscathed during every major race riot from Watts to L.A. to Ferguson, often remaining open serving both rioters and policemen alike, sometimes in the same line. 
Chaitlin's text leaves the reader with more questions than answers. Is the black fast food franchise really a dynamic citizenship in the American consumer republic, or is it still just the same menu everywhere you go? Enjoy this 2021 interview with Dr. Marcia Chaitlin via the Georgetown Gender Justice Initiative. To learn more about GJI, visit genderjustice.georgetown.edu. To learn more about Read and Succeed, please visit readandsucceed.net. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for a conversation on Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America by Marcia Chatlin, who is a professor of history as well as the 21, uh, 2021 Pulitzer winner in history. Uh, we are so proud of uh, Dr. Chatlin and uh, excited to host her for this uh, conversation today. I'm Dr. Melissa Hafaf. I'm the program director for the Gender Justice Initiative. We are a cross-campus uh, effort that's designed to support and nurture research, as well as uh, projects related to intersectional gender justice. And today we are delighted to uh, partner with the DC Public Library, who has been a partner with us for over a year now, where we get to uh, present books by Georgetown authors that um, deal with uh, all kinds of intersectional social justice issues. And now let me introduce you to our moderator for the conversation, uh, who glad, uh, kindly accepted to, to be in conversation with Professor Chatlin, who is Professor Mike uh, Amesqua, who is a professor of um, history uh, at Georgetown University. And uh, his research and teachings focus on Latinx history, urban studies, race, politics, and immigration. I will now pass the mic on to you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. Um, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce our distinguished guest and also my colleague and dear friend, Dr. Marsha Chatlin. Marsha is professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University. She is a scholar of African-American life and culture and a consummate public intellectual with a gift for analyzing our contemporary societal problems with deep historical insight, compassion, and accessibility. She has been a contributor to The Atlantic, Time Magazine, The Chronicle of Higher Ed, and has made a number of appearances on national television outlets, including MSNBC, CNN, BBC America, PBS, and many others. And yes, she has been on many, many podcasts, at times as host and other times as guest and always providing the freshest takes and meeting the moments we find ourselves in. In 2014, when Ferguson, Missouri erupted in an uprising against a police killing of Michael Brown, Marsha organized her fellow scholars in a social media response to the crisis entitled the Ferguson Syllabus as a way to give context to the historical conditions that led to the over-policing of economically marginalized communities of color. To educate, contextualize, and mobilize has been part of Marsha's MO from the very beginning. She has led initiatives to help shape curricular projects in K through 12 schools and in university settings. She is a frequent public speaker and consultant to educational institutions, delivering lectures and workshops on inclusive teaching, on social movements and on food justice. She has earned many awards and fellowships, including being named a National Endowment for the Humanities Faculty Fellow, an Andrew Carnegie Fellow, and an Eric and Wendy Schmidt Fellow at the New America Foundation, to name just a few. 
along with many articles, both scholarly and popular. Marsha is the author of two brilliant books, the second one of which is the subject of our conversation today, but the first one, which is set in her beloved hometown of Chicago, published by Duke University Press, Southside Girls, Growing Up in the Great Migration, centers the lives of young black women and girls who made their own meaning out of the segregated landscape of the Windy City and whose voices were often left out in the building and experience of the black metropolis. Marcia shows us how they built community as children, as daughters, and as workers. Her second book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, published by Livright and an imprint of W.W. Norton, was awarded the Pulitzer Prize this year. As the New York Times wrote in a review of her book, quote, Franchise is a serious work of history, showing how the fast food industry became the undisputed beneficiary of government largesse, and how a highway system bisected communities and created captive markets, offering McDonald's an opportunity for remarkable growth in the 1970s when the growth of suburban outlets was flagging, end of quote. Along with the Pulitzer, Franchise has earned many, many awards and prizes. To list them all here today would add another hour. So I'll end with this. To read Marsha's work is to have a conversation with her one-on-one. -on -one. I invite you to do so. It is all at once illuminating, sobering, and transformational. Please join me in welcoming Marsha Chatlin. Mike, thank you so much for that welcome. Gosh, that was so beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you for joining us today. Um, we are really excited to speak with you about your um, award-winning book and to really kind of try to get at some of the core central themes of your book today. Um, and so I'll, I'll start with a kind of blended question. Um, and that is, how did you come to this project or what led you to write this book? Was there a particular question or moment in your life that set this project into motion? Well, first I want to say thank you to the DC Public Library and the Gender Justice Initiative for putting this event together. You know, it's that I, when I think about the origins of this book, you know, it, so much of it is tied to this broader theme that brings to today around issues of gender that in terms of kind of my own curiosity as a little girl, um, you know, I grew up in a household where people had to work a lot um, to survive. And so I was always reading something, right? Like I remember standing in line with my mom going to currency exchanges. Did I just either date myself or regionalize myself? The currency exchange is like, um, what would you say it's like? It's like places where you can like do money orders. I don't know, it's, it, a lot of immigrants use it to like wire money overseas. Do they still exist? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So currency exchange is like the kind of secondary financial measure for like working class people and immigrants. I'll, I'll return to that. But like, I remember as a kid standing in line at the currency exchange and if there was a brochure, just reading the brochure. Just everything around me was an opportunity to absorb something. And when I think about the origins of this project, I think about you know the way that McDonald's was one of the places that provided material for absorption that had nothing to do with the food. And so when I think of McDonald's growing up in Chicago in the 1980s, I think of events like the Bud Billiken Parade, which was like the black back to school parade and seeing you know, the sponsorship of the local black McDonald's operators. When I think about 
um, the early Martin Luther King Jr. holiday and watching these mini documentaries about Dr. King, I think of those sponsorships. And so part of what I think brought me to this project was this incredible curiosity that was always kind of available to me as a kid, being in places where you had to wait in line for stuff. And the second part of it is this idea of proximity, of thinking about the outsized presence that McDonald's has had on my life, not just as a consumer, but as an intellectual, as someone whose first kind of exposure to serious Black history and the Great Migration happened because McDonald's sponsored a Black History Month event. And so I think when I was in graduate school, I always thought about that relationship and the uneasiness of the corporate entity kind of facilitating my intellectual life. Definitely. No, I, I that a lot of what you just said resonates with me. Also being a child of the, of the 80s and uh, seeing the McDonald's uh, in the neighborhood as a space where it becomes more than just the food, right? Um, uh, so, you know, you mentioned the Great Migration and um, uh, as a historian and as your friend, I, you know, I, I often think about, hmm, I wonder what Marcia thinks about the, the connections between her two books. And so if I could just go there to, to see how you articulate that connection between um, your first book, Southside Girls, Growing Up in the Great Migration, and franchise. And maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, perhaps some through lines or set of ideas that connects one book to the other for you. You know, for for me, I, I, so this is a, like such an unlikely career path when I think about what I thought my future would look like. I was a pretty good writer as a, you know, really liked writing in high school and I really liked my English classes. And so I had gone to college to study journalism and I thought I would be a news reporter. And this again was before online was a thing. And so I thought I'd work for a magazine and they would have, you know, offices and people with salaries. And we know that landscape has changed. But all of this is to say that when I was in college, I really kind of discovered um, the joy of long writing, of research-based writing. And with my first book, Southside Girls, I was trying to figure out something about my childhood. I guess that's it, a deeply Freudian way of understanding why we write history. But I wanted to write a book about African-American girls that suggested that girls were the solution and not the problem. Because I had grown up in the 80s and 90s in the era of uh, daytime talk shows. And this is when shows like Ricky Lake, Maury Povich, Montel Williams, you know, Oprah Winfrey had kind of given birth to the form. But a lot of these shows were about um, this idea of, of, of young Black women as problems, as either, you know, being too aggressive, too loud, getting into fights, having unplanned pregnancies that really bothered people. And a lot of the political discourse that I also was emerging, I think, among a lot of Black groups was that investment in young men was the future. And so there's this weird kind of thing that I saw with a deep anxiety about how girls appeared in public. And then the idea that investing in young men was going to solve the problems of black community in the age of the war on drugs and over-policing and gang violence. And so there was just a lot of noise. And so I wanted to write a book in which I wanted to reimagine black origins in urban cores as a response to thinking about girlhood as a powerful um, 
uh, you know, like a, a powerful construction in why families make the decision to leave the South and go North, how people intervene in public policy, how people narrate um, rhetoric around the family and citizenship. What if girls were at the center of it? How could we reimagine the ways that people talk about girls and young women? And so, you know, my first book was like, it was really hard to finish. Um, for those of you who are close friends, uh, Carol Sargent is here, and Carol Sargent was, you know, the patron saint of this, of rescuing this book from, you know, from a number of issues. But I say this because what I realized I was doing in that book, maybe years after it was published, it was I was trying to figure out what I wanted my contribution as a scholar to be. And it wasn't just saying, here's some novel ways of looking at Black history, because anytime we think we've come up with an idea, we find out that 10 other people had the same thought. But I really wanted to challenge this idea of sources and archive. A lot of people said, well, you can't write about Black children because they didn't leave papers behind. They're not in the archive. And in fact, they are in the archive. The question is, do we care to listen? And so I think with the confidence that I gained from figuring that out for Southside Girls, I also wanted to embark on this book about writing a history of McDonald's without having access to any of McDonald's internal documents. You know, how do we write corporate history without the cooperation of the corporation and what is possible in talking about McDonald's when we put Black people at the center of it? Terrific. That um, makes a lot of sense, the way you, you um, tell these stories through uh, essentially, uh, without having to privilege the, you know, archival corporation, the corporate archives or the institutions that um, that were largely, in the case of the first book, dismissive of young Black girls. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. I, you know, I, the, the way that I, I think about um, a, a, con a connection to both of your books is really um, in, in, in this kind of sense of world creation. Your first book is kind of recreating um, uh, a great migration, Chicago, yes, centering Black women and Black girls, but, but, but really, um, but, but also putting uh, the, the, the uglier underbelly of inequality and, um, and this investment uh, into play in ways that um, your second book will We'll, we'll continue to flesh out that that second part of the 20th century. And so um, maybe we can touch on that uh, uh, here and there as we move forward. For those who joining us, this is an October 2021 interview with Dr. Marcia Chaitlin, professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University about her winner of the 2021 Pulitzer Prize for History franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. The moderator for this event is Dr. Micah Mesqua, assistant professor of history at Georgetown. The sponsor for this event is the Georgetown University Gender Justice Initiative. To listen to this entire interview, please visit readandsucceed.net. Um, if I can, let me get into franchise itself and... Um, one of the things that strikes me about the early part of this book, uh, as a Californian myself, is in thinking about these first families of the fast food franchising, how clustered they are in Southern California, in, in you know, in Los Angeles, in San Bernardino County, um, along the, uh, the, the foothills, right? Um, and so... Uh, and, and you do well to explain the, the, the kind of world that those families come from. But I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about um, 
these first families of fast food franchising and and if they ever thought about their customers uh, diversifying, right, ethnically and racially, and and if they didn't, which it sounds like they didn't, um, why did they have these blind spots? So this is an interesting um, kind of story about how fast food has kind of three lives in America. So the origins of fast food, the idea of eating like something like a hamburger cheap and getting it quickly, you know, is associated with the urban core as something to serve construction workers. So one of the early stories of White Castle, for instance, was that White Castle was super popular with um, working class people, construction workers, and then people who had way too much to drink. And, you know, <laughs> folks of a certain age um, know that feeling of like why White Castle works after, a, you know, a long night out. Um, so it was considered kind of low class, um, you know, very much um, not suitable for middle-class families. But then White Castle was so delicious as the story goes that you know um, middle-class white women were sending out their servants to go purchase White Castle. And so it became this food that was kind of okay for people of a certain class to eat. And a lot of this comes from um, the exposés from books like The Jungle about the meat industry. Mm -hmm. So ground meat did not have the kind of acceptance as a part of a regular diet as it does today. So let's fast forward to Southern California. So the reason why Southern California is, uh, is able to give birth to so many of the big chains that we still have today, In-N-Out, McDonald's, um, Carl's Jr. is because I think that there are two things that are working in California in the 1940s. One, um, we still have a lot of cheap land and there's room to grow. The growing suburbanization of Southern California. The weather also contributes to it because fast food was considered something you ate outside. And then the rise of car culture after World War II in which people are now using their cars as a mode of entertainment. And so all of this contributes to the ability for this part of the country to give birth to not just the brands, but then the mechanization of the production of fast food. You know, there's fast food chains in the Midwest, there's some in the South, but a lot of these Southern California families, I think they have also, they're part of a rising evangelical culture. I think religion plays a large part of it about a kind of relationship to wealth and prosperity that will also fuel them in the 60s and 70s. And so when people think of McDonald's, for instance, they often think of Ray Kroc because he's the iconic founder. But the real founders, the McDonald's brothers, you know, Ronald and Maurice, I write about how they really do symbolize um, you know, the generation of, of white entrepreneurs who are able to fail upward. They fail often, but they're always given breaks until they develop the concept of McDonald's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that was really striking to see the, um, the the McDonald's brothers in your in your book and the the many times that they have to uh, reinvent themselves essentially until they you know really strike it with with a clientele that is devoted to their their cheap but tasty burgers. Um, so um, let me move on to um, uh, something that is not fully fleshed out in a chapter, but, but that you touch on in a meaningful way, which is this notion of the hiring of women at McDonald's, right? Um, early on, uh, it seems that the McDonald's brothers uh, find uh, their young women employees 
perhaps too distracting to uh, the, the clientele, right? Um, and uh, and and so that's kind of one way that 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 women figure into the hiring of McDonald's early on. But then fast forward to the uh, late '60s, early 1970s, and and the the first uh, black franchisees of McDonald's they actually um, open up their hiring to young women, right? Young women of color. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that, that arc and that shift? Yeah, sexism is evergreen in every industry. So when we think about the early fast food industry, the way it markets itself in the 1950s, it's kind of in this tense place because on one hand, it is the ultimate teen hangout. It's the place where, um, you know, uh, young people who are, growing in terms of the high school attendance population. Um, and high schools in the 1950s are very steeped into heterosexual culture. It's the origin of the prom, you know, cutest couples in yearbooks. And this idea that this will be the place where, um, you know, young people will learn to date and find a lifetime uh, partner. And so all of this is to say, hanging out after school in the fast food um, place becomes a really big part of teenage socialization. And so the McDonald's brothers initially, they're near a high school, they're near San Bernardino High School, and they're getting a lot of good business from the high school students, but they're loud. Um, they're using young women as car hops and they're flirting with the boys, you know, they're stealing silverware. And so when McDonald's kind of closes and reinvents itself, it gets rid of the silverware and then starts using plastic um, a, a paper wrapping for its food. It fires the young women so that they could really focus on efficiency and delivery. And they now want it to be a family-friendly place. And so they're marketing to um, housewives, they're marketing to ascendant middle-class families to say, this can be a place for your kids to come and enjoy a night out, give mom a break. And so, you know, gender figures so prominently in how these ideas of what fast food is supposed to do for families. So when we get to the period of time where McDonald's is um, growing in its presence in Black communities, a lot of the early Black franchisees they need to get a good workforce into their stores. They're in a lot of places in which there is very high youth unemployment, and they're concerned about, you know, who's trainable, who's trusted. And that's when you start to see more young Black women working at McDonald's. And one of the things that people are often surprised when I share with them, you know, when I was doing interviews for this book, I met a Black woman in her 60s, and she said, you know, when I first came up in the McDonald's system, I couldn't get a job as a manager because they weren't used to seeing Black women as McDonald's managers. It was a very big deal. And so this creates a route into some mobility within the service sector for this group of women who had previously um, kind of been put out. And then the last thing I'll say about kind of gender and fast food, what starts to happen in the 1970s, interestingly enough, is that there's a real backlash against women um, serving their children fast food because it's a response to this idea that you know women have overtaken the labor market because of the feminist movement when in reality it's because of the economic hardships families that had previously you know been able to survive on one income they can't do that into the 1970s and so the idea of working women as failing at home gets mapped onto the fast food industry. Now they're just feeding their kids burgers instead of being able to cook. So you start to see the different ways that the kind of misogyny that is projected onto fast food shifts and changes as the fast food industry grows. 
For those of us joining us, this is an October 2021 interview with Dr. Marcia Chaitlin, Professor of History and African American Studies at Georgetown University, about her winner of the 2021 Pulitzer Prize for History, Franchise, the Golden Arches in Black America. The moderator for this event is Dr. Micah Mesqua, Assistant Professor of History at Georgetown. The sponsor for this event is the Georgetown University Gender Justice Initiative. To listen to this entire interview, please visit readandsucceed.net. So, you know, in thinking about people that are you know, picking up your book, perhaps not a historian, but a general reader or a young reader that hears the phrase black capitalism in, in kind of fresh takes and in, 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 on Twitter and social media, um, they, they're, they're going to learn a lot about the kind of black capitalism a lot of people are talking about, but they're also going to learn a lot about earlier histories of black capitalism in the 19th century through your book. Um, you 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 uh, do well to to explain to your readers that this is not a new thing in the '70s, and that actually um, African American communities have um, have kind of struck out on their own uh, attempts at economic empowerment uh, that that go back a long long time. And so I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit more to those kinds of readers. Um, about these kind of two uh, distinct moments of Black capitalism in America? So, you know, Black capitalism as a framing idea, it has different names and it makes itself visible in different ways throughout time. But it's this idea that there is ultimately a gap because of racism between the individual and the resources and privileges that are associated with citizenship, whether it's the right to vote, the right to access uh, public schools, the right to um, fair wages. There's always this gap. And under the framework of Black capitalism, there's this idea that earning money through business helps close the gap or sometimes just soothe the consequences of that gap. And so in the 19th century, you know, we have um, Black, today there's so much talk about Black-owned businesses and you have to support a Black-owned business and I have all sorts of critiques about that that we can return to, but it's this idea that what Black business at the very least can do is to create enough capital to either protect or create negotiation with the larger power structure. So in the 19th century, you know, even before emancipation, you have some Black land owning, you have some Black real estate um, owning, you have African-Americans setting up a little bit of business, you have enslaved people able to kind of earn wages um, on a contract basis or by selling vegetables, right? You have these different ways that people are gonna earn a little money and what they're gonna do with that money is they're going to buy the freedom of their family members. They're gonna buy their own freedom. They're going to be able to try to find a place for themselves in a world that does not accommodate or acknowledge them. And so in this period of time with the rise of fast food industry, everyone is talking about black capitalism as oh, this is what we were supposed to do, right? Like we've had this long period of time where people are dying for the right to vote. We have this period of time where people are putting their children through incredible trauma to be able to access a public school. We have people who are, you know, getting um, uh, sprayed with acid when they try to swim in a public pool. We have all of this incredible courage to try to access rights and we don't have a lot to show for it. So maybe what we should do is really focus on building our economic power within our communities. And so there is a direct line between that person who is earning to try to buy their freedom to the black funeral home owner 
who was able to negotiate for maybe another black elementary school in a town in exchange for discouraging people for you know advocating for their voting rights to today where Twitter is just like aflame with these conversations mm -hmm. about whether Jay-Z's, what is the Rock Nation brunch? Whether paying $10,000 to go to a brunch is a good investment if you learn, you know, the secrets of black billionaires, blah, blah, blah. And Rihanna's mm -hmm. making a fortune, you know? So all of these conversations about what does black wealth actually mean and what can it translates to, translate to into the quality of everyday people's lives? So I think I have time for one more of my own questions before I pivot to um, audience questions. Uh, but I do want to make sure that I ask this one because I found it to be one of the just the most remarkable parts of your book, which is this idea that um, that to to McDonald's corporate headquarters, you know, um, that that black franchisees and here I'm thinking of, uh, you know, Petty and folks that are in D.C. and in the aftermath of, of the King assassination, that they're the ones that are going to be the right kind of translators of urban America to corporate America, right? That, that, that McDonald's needs to find folks that can really be the face of their, of, their, of their business, of their corporation in the inner city, as you say, to reconcile King's dream with Crocs' dream, which I love. And so I guess I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that relationship and um, as translators of Black America, right? Um, and maybe where that doesn't pan out. I know you have a lot of examples in the book, uh, but, but maybe some of your favorite examples. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's like a real three ring circus or rather a clown car just filled with people who are in relationship or in conversation with McDonald's. So after King's assassination, McDonald says, okay, we're going to start looking at the black urban market and they do it in a number of ways. But one of the things that this book points to, and you know, after you finish a book, you think about all of the things that you should have written in it, but it's also codifying like um, corporate diversity and inclusion frameworks, the things that we're used to today. You know, how, you know, there's a racist incident at a business and they send like thoughts and prayers and solidarity and you know the kind of um rhetoric that can often come up very empty when something happens this period of time in the late 60s there the the idea of it and the form of that is being developed and mcdonald's is at the front line of it so you know they're saying things like they're being socially progressive by opening restaurants in black communities and they're saying that you know we are listening to the people because we're providing hamburgers in this way but the team that is part of it is just this incredible motley crew of people who are coming from all sorts of backgrounds. The first African-American to franchise McDonald's is this guy who's a barber in Chicago, and he's considered a trusted member of the community. So he reopens a store that's abandoned by a white franchise owner. You've got people who are very integral in the civil rights movement, um, people like Hank Thomas, who was a freedom writer, who you know, almost lost his life testing bus segregation laws in the South. You know, he makes the pivot from Dairy Queen and then later McDonald's franchises, and he, he grows um, incredibly wealthy in the South doing that. You know, you have um, people like Julian Bond, who later runs for Congress. He also um, becomes a big ally to McDonald's as they try to recruit more African-Americans uh, to their system. And so there's this weird way that 
you know, the fast food industry, because of its wealth, because of its influence, because of its power, gets a lot of people to sign on to it. And I think what we see, uh, to round out your question, is that there's this weird moment um, where, you know, the politics of fast food become so untenable that we can actually have black politicians say, you know what, I'm really not into fast food. I'm not going to align with McDonald's. But for many years and up to, to up to now, serious civil rights groups like the NAACP and the Urban League, they work in partnership with McDonald's because that corporate entity has so much power and um, influence. And this is why I think this book is really about constrained choices. You know, do people really feel like the fast food industry is a good thing for Black people? Well, maybe they don't, but what they do see is a possibility and an opportunity because of that gap I talked about earlier, because what else can the, can communities uh, attract and what else can people um, hope for? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, um, I, I find that really remarkable in terms of the 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 core themes of your book and how you really um you you ask a profound question about the role of these corporations in uh urban america uh you also show us the 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 ills of having these corporations uh essentially have their way with uh with with these communities but um but then you you also demonstrate how communities themselves speak back and uh, demand answers and accountability uh, for the for the profits that they're making and uh, the kind of low um, sense of delivery to these communities. For those just joining us, this is an October 2021 interview with Dr. Marcia Chaitlin, professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University about her winner of the 2021 Pulitzer Prize for History franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. The moderator for this event is Dr. Micah Mesqua, assistant professor of history at Georgetown. The sponsor for this event is the Georgetown University Gender Justice Initiative. To listen to this entire interview, please visit readandsucceed.net. I'm going to read a question by Glenn Williamson, uh, who is curious to hear your thoughts on McDonald's's relocation of the of its main headquarters from suburban Oak Brook, Illinois, to the near west side in Chicago, a very swank area now. Um, does this show any greater focus on urban issues and or the African-American community? Absolutely not. Um, you know, one <laughs> of the reasons why McDonald's went out to Oak Brook was because it used to be in downtown Chicago. And then in the late 60s with the uprisings, uh, especially after King's assassination, they moved out to the suburbs. And, you know, Ray Kroc always said that the suburbs is where McDonald's grew up. And so this is where the corporation was comfortable and they had a main campus, they had a campus there and they had the Hamburg University. Um, their decision to come into the city, and I believe they're in Oprah Winfrey's old studio space. Are they mm -hmm. in the Harpo Studios? Um, they came at a moment where that part of the city had been deeply gentrified for a long time. Google and Uber, I believe, have offices in that area. Um, mm -hmm. There's a very, um, you know, very nice strip of very expensive restaurants a few blocks mm -hmm. from there on Randolph and Lake. And so it is, um, you know, it is, it is not the near west side of the era in which, um, you know, McDonald's was first trying this um, strategy. No, definitely not. Um, thank you for that. Um, and so, you know, we we have some terrific questions from from uh, people that are in the audience. Uh, I'll I'll ask a few of these. One is 
the the universal question for authors of history was there something exciting that didn't make it into the book that you can share with us you know there's so much there was so much on the cutting room floor um there were some people had some really terse comments about the relationship to mcdonald's that was not for public consumption um but one of the things that i thought was really curious was that there's this whole other story that someone else should write about um, suppliers and McDonald's attempt to recruit minority suppliers shortly after they did the franchising. Um, and so there were there was a sausage company, I think there was a hamburger buns manufacturer, but some of the real challenges of actually supplying a McDonald's mirror some of the challenges that the black franchise owners um, got. So that didn't make it into the book. And you know, I could really go down some rabbit holes. Um, the first draft of this book is a mess because there are just so many non sequiturs. I thought um, there, I, I wish that I could have spent a little bit more time talking about the black celebrities that tried to give McDonald's a run for their money by suggesting that they had businesses that were more authentically black owned. Um, Mahalia Jackson does that with Glory Fried Chicken. Um, Muhammad Ali has Champ Burger. Um, you know, at one point, um, James Brown gives a press conference, I believe in 1969, he's like, I'm not doing music anymore. I need to focus on my franchise, gold platter restaurants. It's all like a scam. Um, so I think, you know, I think I would have, if I could have added another chapter, it would have been more about, you know, the rise of Black celebrities, especially in the sports space, who are trying to um, lease their images to these really white-owned fast food companies that they're trying to suggest is black owned and more authentic. Yeah, no, thank you. I, I, I did pick up a sense of that, that, that alternative history of, of, of black fast food uh, entrepreneurs. And, uh, and yeah, to, to, to see some of these names, Mahalia Jackson, James Brown, uh, Muhammad Ali is amazing. I had no idea. Uh, were you going to mention another celebrity? Jerry Davis Jr. gets involved in this too. Mm. I mean, and, the, and, and, and this is something that I think it's easy to lose sight of today when you have people like, you know, Drake and um, Michael Jordan and, you know, Travis Scott, like these big headliner black entertainers and sports figures being able to kind of sell McDonald's. Um, you know, this was not a huge reality for um, black entertainers in the 60s and 70s, especially the athletes. Athletes who mm -hmm. use franchising to try to secure their financial futures after they can't play sports anymore. And there's a whole, I mean, I think that continues today where franchising becomes part of the portfolio of black celebrities and black entertainers because they feel like this is a sure thing, even though sometimes franchising can be an incredibly economically unstable vehicle for wealth building. Yes, no, evidently so. Um, this is uh, a question for me, really, that's not in the uh, coming from the audience, but did you initially think that this book could be written without a focus on franchising? Or was that really always on the table? Because when I was reading your book, you know, you talk about um, the first issue of Black Enterprise mm -hmm. and how franchising is, is on the cover of, of the magazine. And so... I, I was just wondering if that was something that you ever considered that maybe that was not going to be such a big deal in your book. So the, the first draft of the idea of the book was so boring. Um, it was supposed to be 
a book about um, kind of uh, food and civil rights very broadly. And I was going to write about how, if you look at the memoirs of you know, major civil rights figures, people like um, uh, Melba Patillo Beals, who integrates Little Rock Central High School in 1957, if you look at um, you know, James Baldwin has a story about, I think, um, being in a coffee shop and this white waitress humiliates him. Like there are all of these scenes in which restaurants are either a site of trauma or integrated restaurants are considered this kind of like beloved community possibility. Um, a few years ago, John Lewis um, gave a speech at Georgetown and he talks about eating at a Chinese restaurant before the March on Washington. And I thought 50 plus years after this historic moment, he remembers that because he said, you know, this is not an experience I ever had in Alabama. And so I wanted to kind of like riff on that idea, but I had nothing really to say. I just, I think one of the hardest things as a historian is having a point to what you're writing about, because I could write entire books of things that I just think are interesting and they're not pointing to anything. So all of this is to say that originally the book was supposed to be about the ways that the restaurant figures so prominently in civil rights narratives. And then there's going to be one chapter about McDonald's and Black America. And it was supposed to be about the advertising, the ways that they were trying to make appeals to Black consumers. And then I got more into it and I was like, okay, maybe I'll write a little bit about franchising. And I got feedback from an editor who said like, the book is here. This is the most interesting and compelling thing that I've read in this proposal. Why don't you go back and see if you can write a whole book about it? And she was absolutely right. Mm -hmm. You know, what she saw was a story that couldn't be contained. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, the framework of franchising was my best vehicle to talk about the ways that race will always constrict what we believe economic opportunity can provide. Like no matter how many millions of dollars a black franchisee makes, he knows that, or she knows that there's a white franchisee who's making more money just mm -hmm. by virtue of who they are and the opportunities they get. And I think that way I was able to use franchising as the kind of, you know, the conceit to try to tell the story. For those who are joining us, this is an October 2021 interview with Dr. Marcia Chaitlin, Professor of History and African American Studies at Georgetown University, about her winner of the 2021 Pulitzer Prize for History, Franchise, the Golden Arches in Black America. The moderator for this event is Dr. Micah Mesqua, Assistant Professor of History at Georgetown. The sponsor for this event is the Georgetown University Gender Justice Initiative. To listen to this entire interview, please visit readandsucceed.net. Okay, so we have a question from uh, Jay Leon Peace. What part does affordability play in the appeal of McDonald's to low-income Black communities? You know, I really appreciate that question because one of the things that I try to talk about when I talk about this book is the fact that fast food is a practical, smart choice for a lot of people. That, you know, I wrote this book in response to kind of discourses that I think were um, particularly offensive and particularly reductive when, you know, why are, pe why are those people eating this type of food? And we lose sight of the fact that the food is very practical. It's cheap, it's available um, fast. You can eat it in between your two or three jobs. Um, it provides you the kind of fats, carbs, and sugars that you need to like, you know, haul through the next few hours. And so there's a lot of good reasons to eat fast food. When we live under a system in which people have to work multiple jobs to survive, when people don't have time, um, to be in you know, stable housing with enough electricity and gas to make food every day. It makes perfect sense. The low cost is a large part of it. And I think with the emergence of fast casual as a category in the food 
um, space. What we're seeing is that I think McDonald's and Burger King and Taco Bell would be the choice of people who are less affluent and then that middle space of fast casual, which, you know, I don't know if we mark that as healthy food, but it gives the appearance of a kind of healthiness because, you know, it's in a sterile environment, like a Chipotle looks like a hospital. And, and you know, it, it, it signals certain ideas about class and food, but it's fast food. Starbucks is fast food, Panera is fast food, but the ways we mark them are so different. And so, you know, when McDonald's was first trying to attract black consumers, you know, they really did focus on the price point because that made sense. The majority of the people who were purchasing were working class people who were developing a relationship to the marketplace that they had been shut out before. So you want to make it affordable and it makes sense. So we have another question um, from that was that was sent from from an audience member that I think really connects to that opening scene in your book about Ferguson and and the role of McDonald's in this chaotic moment in which uh, protesters are using it for relief, but also journalists are, are plugging their laptops and their cell phones in there. Um, and, and really the, just the, the moment we're still in about racial justice and police violence, which is, um, and this, this audience member wants to know, what would be your take on McDonald's and other multinational corporations' response to Black Lives Matter? And you know, here I'm thinking, of course, of, of just all the companies, right? That, oh that have God, really- it's so awkward. It's so awkward. <laughs> it, right, right. You I know, mean... I think, I, you know, I'm not going to do this, but I'm not going to say, there are only two tweets of the summer of 2020 that I appreciated that were like, you know, about the moment. Everything else was just so uncomfortable, including McDonald's that did like a little Twitter video. And at the end, it says, you know, like, we see you in our customers, we see you in our employees, we see you in our franchisees. And then they said Black Lives Matter. And I thought, oh God, please don't do this. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it's on brand. It's McDonald's has consistently tried to enter the conversation mm -hmm. at all of these critical moments, whether it's in 68 saying that, you know, King's death inspired them to reach out to the black community, whether it's in 92 when they said, you know, during the LA rebellion, none of our stores were harmed in South Los Angeles because we're, we, we've always been there. You know, um, you know, that Ferguson McDonald's is fascinating to me because it is the backdrop for so much of the drama. And it is also franchised by a Black um, franchisee. And uh, recently I heard it was also the target of a Fight for 15 campaign. So it's all of the things, right? It's the question about wages and labor. It's this relationship to Black America. And it's also kind of in this moment. And, you know, when McDonald's tweets Black Lives Matter, it's, it, it's so painful because I think that as one of the largest employers in the country and an employer of so many black and brown people, there's so many ways that they can show their solidarity. They haven't asked my opinion, but I'm available at McDonald's. If you ever want to sit down and talk, you know, you know, paid sick leave across your franchises could be one of the greatest, you know, signs that black lives matter, but here we are. And what was so fascinating in their tweet, they said, you know, we're giving money to the NAACP. And it's like, yes, you've been doing that since the late 60s. You know, you have been using Black civil rights organizations um, as both a shield as well as, you know, a prod to try to, you know, do this type of engagement. So McDonald's is going through a lot, though. Uh, they're being sued by Black franchise owners. There's some 
internal um, racial discrimination lawsuits. You know, they're trying to compete in a increasingly crowded market where fast food is better than it's ever been mm-hmm. and more interesting mm-hmm. and more creative. And, you know, they're trying. Uh, well, that, that generates a follow-up for me uh, about whether McDonald's has weighed in on your book in any form or fashion. Have they made a comment or has any representative of McDonald's just said anything at all about franchise? So there was, there's been some awkward moments. So um, the incoming CEO at the time of McDonald's, Chris Kaminsky, he tweeted his bookshelf from his office and my book was on there, but I don't know if he had read it yet. And so I think that there's a misreading that my book is a celebration of Black franchisees. And I think think my book is a recognition of what Black franchisees experienced and the complicated role they play. But I I wouldn't put this in the category of the, you know, biographies of Ray Kroc or the McDonald's, you know, books that talk about, you know, McDonald's without any critiques. Um, When I was on my book tour in person, I met a few people on the road who had worked for McDonald's and sometimes they were like, I work there and I'm like, okay, good luck. And then some people who used to work there who are like, you know, it's worse than you think. And I was like, okay. Um, Mm. You know, recently someone who works with McDonald's as a consultant reached out to me um, to try to talk to a group. And I said, you know, I I just want to be really clear what my position is. I'm happy to share my research with whoever asks, but you know, I take, I, I make it really clear my critiques of the fast food industry and McDonald's is included. And I just want you to be sure, like, I'm the one that you want engaging. Mm-hmm. I think, because I think I, I want to be fair and humane and in, in, in kind of how I engage. And he said, yeah, maybe I don't want to invite you. Um, the one thing that did happen that what I did find upsetting was I did a podcast with Business Insider called Brought to You By, where we talked about one of the chapters in the book. And they asked McDonald's for comment and they said it was an inaccurate um, portrayal of their commitment to diversity. And I thought that wasn't cool because mm-hmm. to say that my work's inaccurate is not, that's not okay because of right. the living, right? Um, and so, you know, I can concede that their fries are good. I just don't like the mm-hmm. people which they're made. Um, yeah. So that's been my experience with McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. McDonald's, check the receipts. Come on, get into the footnotes. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of really cool questions in here. One that just resonates with me so much as a as a person that d- did grow up going to McDonald's with my family, and that's the the a question about the one dollar menu. So, what do you see? This is a question. What do you see as the positive and negative impacts of McDonald's's one dollar menu on BIPOC and low income communities? I mean here's an opportunity to let your family go somewhere. You know, I, you know, I, every, I think so much of what makes the U.S. such a challenging place. I was talking about my mom's an immigrant from Haiti and she said, the thing about America is that's, that's hard is that when I was in Haiti growing up, I knew I was poor, but everyone else was poor around me. So I didn't have an idea of what it meant to not be poor. But as I got older and I came to the United States, when you're poor in the United States, you have a very clear vision of all the things you're not getting because you're poor. And I think that part of um, you know, what this book is about is this idea of the consumer experience being wrapped into the idea of being a citizen, of being a person who matters, being a person of value, even if that's really problematic. And I think one of 
my goals as someone who's very critical of these systems is to never believe that I'm smarter than it or that it can't entrap me. You know, capitalism works because it makes you always feel less than and that there is a lack and you're driven closer and closer to it as a result. That there's a lot of um, very, it's seductive, right? And so even though we might say like McDonald's isn't the most special thing in the world, for a family that is cut off from this idea of family consumer citizenship of going out and going on vacations, buying toys for your kids, McDonald's makes that so accessible with a Happy Meal and a $1 menu. Uh, that dollar menu is like key um, to, to allowing you know, access to food. If you think about people who are unhoused, if you think about people who are scraping by on a few dollars, like this can provide you a meal and entry to a place to sit down and use the bathroom, um, you know, access the internet. So the dollar menu is key. The thing that's interesting about innovations like the dollar menu is the disparate impact it then has within the franchise system. Because mm -hmm. one of the arguments that Black franchisees makes make is that they're disadvantaged within the system. So when you have deep discounts on food, or when you have um, initiatives like modernizing the store for the touchscreen um, refills, all day breakfast, all of those things cut into the bottom line. And African-American franchisees, some argue that those types of measures cut into their bottom line greater because of the conditions in which they have to do business, which I think is always really a fascinating other way of looking at the high promotion culture of fast food. And that's something yeah. that I came to because I was you know, working on this book. That's really fascinating because it almost shows the contradictions within Ray Kroc's um, and his kind of like that, that acronym you had of like quality service or his acronym, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's, what you're saying is there's already this kind of built-in inequality within the franchises within, where, depending on where they're placed, right? I mean, you have the story of the one black franchisee who does finally buy a McDonald's restaurant, but only to find out that it's behind the times. It doesn't have any of the modern equipment that perhaps a suburban McDonald's has. Um, and so how can it meet, you know, the, the those high quality standards and uniformity that, that was demanded by the by Croc himself, right? So I, I think that that's really fascinating. For those who's joining us, this is an October 2021 interview with Dr. Marcia Chaitlin, professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University about her winner of the 2021 Pulitzer Prize for History, Franchise, the Golden Arches in Black America. The moderator for this event is Dr. Micah Mesqua, assistant professor of history at Georgetown. The sponsor for this event is the Georgetown University Gender Justice Initiative. To listen to this entire interview, please visit readandsucceed.net. Um, on, the, on the topic of accessibility, there's something I think your book does that is really profound for, for budding scholars and journalists out there that want to write books and exposés about powerful corporations, right? I mean, this is, uh, you know, to quote um, another historian, um, the new Gilded Age, right? This is the era of Facebook and Google and, um, and, and so many powerful multinational corporations that journalists and scholars want to write about. They want to demystify their power or expose them. And you wrote a book essentially about a powerful multinational corporation without having access to those um, corporate archives. 
can you say just a little bit more in the in 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 the kind of uh, mode of perhaps inspiration to other people out there that want to write about these powerful corporations, and, and maybe give it, show us a little bit underneath the hood as to how you how you did this, how you accomplished this. Yeah. So I think you know I I think I'm I don't know I. You can't you can't do the work that we do like without being kind of relentless and not letting things go. And you know, when I sit down and I write, you know, like on the I, and I also listen to way too much true crime podcasts and I watch a lot of the true crime TV shows. So every time I'm kind of thinking about a topic, I'm thinking of that like that scene in the show where they have the bulletin board with like all the suspects and all the details of the crime and you're moving things around. And so when I sit down and I think, okay, here's, what is my experience of McDonald's as a black person? What are the things that I think about? I think about the sponsorships. I think about the commercials. I think about um, the high profile people who are like, you know, kind of associated with me. I sit down and I write everyone's name down. And then for everyone's name, I go backwards. Where did they go to college? Where did they work? Who, who were they connected to? And I make these kind of like, these like maps of connection. And then I go to all of those sources. And that's what I had to do with my first book. So, um, so, so I'm at the Library of Congress and I'm like, okay, there's a lawsuit that involves McDonald's and an African-American who's trying to get a franchise and the NAACP allegedly was sent a letter about it. So I'm going to the NAACP and I'm trying to find the McDonald's stuff there. Now, doing a broad search, I might just, you know, enter McDonald's in the search term and see what I get. But I'm thinking, how are corporations considered people in a lot of legal proceedings and the way that they engage? And if they are people, who are the people around them? And so then, you know, I start searching. Then I think, okay, if the NAACP is getting in the middle of this, then maybe Jesse Jackson's Operation Push got into this, maybe other chapters of the NAACP, maybe the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and then I'm just thinking about kind of relationships and connections. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, how we teach what we teach, right? Who is in the room at the same time? And then you get these like wild stories of like, wait, they were, they were talking about this, you know? Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the early consultants to McDonald's is C.T. Vivian, who is like the architect of the civil rights struggle. And I'm trying to imagine him in the offices of McDonald's, mm -hmm. like talking to these people, but he's there. So if he's there and his organization is here and his, alma mater is here and his associates are here, then I go to all of those places. You know, I had to go to the University of Virginia to get Julian Bond's papers that talk about franchising. Mm -hmm. I, I, I didn't imagine that that would be one of the stops um, in a million years. And the thing I'll say about that, you know, for those who are part of, you know, the academic community, this is why these projects take a long time and that's why they cost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I mean, funding is so important because I had to fly in person and I had to go through every single box and every single folder to mm -hmm. see like where I can find the tidbits. Mm -hmm. So we have another question here again from Jay Leon Peace. Um, and he says, uh, clearly not foreseen, how has McDonald's adapted to deal with its essential role in providing shelter to the homeless populations mm -hmm. throughout the U.S., particularly the 24-hour stores? Really good question. You know, the, the fast food restaurants um, have all responded in different ways. Um, some have seen this as a reason for a lot of security. And so this is why sometimes at some locations you might see, you know, the kind of 
um, like private security people, you know, at the stores. Um, throughout the 70s, 80s, and there's some of it today, there's concern about McDonald's contributing to juvenile delinquency and, and um, uh, truant behavior. So there might be like a school resource officer close to the McDonald's, close to the school. Um, but in terms of, you know, the business responses um, to people being there, um, you know, sometimes there's McDonald's and it's sometimes an indicator of what the larger community is struggling with that might have rules about how long you can sit there, right? You start to see the implementation of rules that, um, you know, one wonders if they're violating the Civil Rights Act of 64, um, rules about who can use the bathroom, um, security locks on bathrooms, codes, tokens, right? All of the resources that people who don't have homes may use a fast food restaurant for, there starts to be kind of these measures and protocols of surveillance and security to kind of discourage it. Um, sometimes this happens with senior citizens who like mm -hmm. to use McDonald's as their spot. And mm -hmm. depending on you know, how the community views that, they might welcome it with free coffee for seniors or they might tell seniors, you know, you can sit here for an hour and then you have to leave. And so, you know, this just shows us the great need for public space. Mm -hmm. And this is why I'm so glad this talk is sponsored by the library. Um, everything good that I've ever done started at a public library, but it's one of the few places that you can be, right? Absolutely. Without purchasing anything, without, you know, showing identification, you can just be in a library and learn and engage in community. And increasingly, you know, there's so few places where that can happen. Yes, yes, no, thank you so much, public libraries, for existing. There's a there's another kind of sub-theme, really, a, a really big theme in your book that um, perhaps you don't use this word as frequently, but neoliberalism and and really this notion that um, that 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 the private uh, sphere, that 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 industry, that businesses can can play a role in in, in what the state is supposed to do, right? Um, and um, and as this uh, question shows, there there is a need for public spaces. Uh, McDonald's has become this kind of ad hoc space for gathering and congregating for the people that uh, that are unsheltered or that are uh, in other ways marginalized in our societies. Right, people that are elderly. Um, what is something that maybe you did not know about neoliberalism that maybe you learned from writing your book and finishing your book, uh, just about the state of things now um, that you can share with us? You know, I for, for a few years before I finished this book, I thought of the, you know, the shorthand um, topic sentence of this book is how McDonald's replaced the state in Black America. And I was like, wow, that's such an aggressive claim. You know, <laughs> who am I to make it? And I kind of wish I had <laughs> stuck with it because it's kind of true. Um, you know, I, I think the thing that surprised me when we talk about neoliberalism, essentially what we're talking about is gutting the public sector and leaving the private sector um, a lot of um, leeway and a lot of permission to engage in what we would consider public goods. And I think what I think what struck me about doing this research and thinking about this fundamental problem is that I started to see the ways that um, when the problem is around racial justice, how that becomes like twofold the solution. So we've we've seen the critique that you know 
privatization has kind of ruined everyone's good time or everyone's possibilities rather. But I don't think I realized just how much privatization as a response to racial injustice was the move. That this isn't just about every community. This is about certain communities that are most vulnerable to these ideas. And you know, if we think about it at its most basic level of this past summer, of the recent you know, past, George Floyd didn't die because there's not enough Black-owned businesses in Minneapolis. Like that's not, that's not how it works. But shortly after his death, you would think that that was the issue, right? If you were a Martian from outer space mm-hmm. and you saw the number of companies that are saying, you know, we'll support Black businesses and, you know, order a sandwich from a Black business, you would have thought these two things were related, but they're not. But under this kind of system, this playbook of the federal government and the playbook of civil society, that's always the answer. That's right. the reason why people you know, are distraught and filled with grief and, and victimized. It's just they don't have an opportunity to spend money in local stores and they're like, what are you talking about? Right. And so I think those connections were even clearer because I knew that King's death facilitated this pivot towards black communities but I don't think I realized just what was being sold to Black communities as business in exchange for actually thoughtful consideration of the rights of people. So in the few minutes we have left, um, Marcia, is there anything that you want to share with our audience or, or ask or, or just contribute that, that maybe we're not asking you? Well, I love to talk about what I'm reading, and I think you should all read this book that's coming out soon called Making Mexican Chicago from Post-War Settlement to the, in the, to the Age of Gentrification by Mike Mesqua. I think your book is the perfect complement to my book. I really do, because you are talking about Chicago and um, the Mexican and Mexican-American community having to make some of these same tough decisions about what the future is going to look like what to accept, what not to accept, the role of business, how you fight back and how you concede. And so um, making Mexican Chicago book market, uh, you might want to, pre- oh, you can pre-order it now too. I, on the University of Chicago site, it'll be out um, in the winter of 2022. 20, uh, and, you know, I, I, listen, I'm so excited that this gets to be my job, um, that I get to tell stories that are a little weird and that people have joined me and trusted me to tell kind of weird stories. Um, I mean, this is so, this is such an exciting time, um, I think for history, because there's an understanding that we can shift the lens and we can still, you know, reach a lot of people that this isn't niche. This is actually American history. And this is a story, or these are ways of telling stories that we are like desperately in need of. That's it for episode 25 of Read and Succeed. Join us next episode for Thanksgiving. Reading and reviewing an American classic, The Last of the Mohicans, a narrative of 1757 by James Fenimore Cooper. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Thanks for listening.